The Clixie Podcast with Tim Flagg. Insight, opinion and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. The fact that you can understand someone, understand the motivations by what they do, how to sell to them, who they are, rather than just where they are and what they buy, is a key part of the future. This is the ClickZ Digital Marketing Podcast, and I'll be talking to Jim Hodgkins from Visual DNA about how marketers can obtain insights into the psychological profile of their audiences, allowing more accurate segmentation and tailored advertising. I'm excited to be joined by Jim Hodgkins, the Managing Director at Visual DNA, a business which combines psychology and big data to provide psychographic consumer insights. Jim leads Visual DNA's services to advertisers and marketers, focused on growing customer insights and targeting services. Jim believes that new technology and data enables marketers to develop much closer relationships with consumers and that Visual DNA is in an amazing position to help customers and businesses control how they use data for mutual benefit. He led experienced global and UK marketing services businesses from 2008 to 2012, and prior to that, built experienced B2C credit expert service. Jim is also CEO of a European JV with MyPoints.com, a pioneer online reward program utilizing points to incentivize users to interact with online promotions. So Jim, I would like to welcome you to the ClickSee Digital Marketing Podcast. Thank you very much. I wonder whether we could start off by you telling us a little bit more about you and your story, how you end up getting into doing what you're doing today. Yes, I'd love to. Thank you. I think actually what I do today is uh, an evolution uh, of what I've done right since college, but very much focused on the data that's available with our device usage today and the characteristics we can tell about people. I, I started off as a geographer and I studied retailing and marketing within that. So why uh, retailers put stores where they do, for example, and uh, looked at subjects while at college, like uh, how you could determine house prices by creating algorithms out of census data. And I really took that forward, discovering market research and then direct marketing in the 90s, where uh, just as we do today, you know, we would use algorithms to find the best target audiences for products and services. And I worked within the direct mail medium mostly in the 90s, uh, building massive databases of consumer behavior for uh, FMCG and financial brands. So uh, people from Procter & Gamble and Unilever to uh, Barclay Card, for example. And um, it really was uh, direct response marketing, you know, as the era changed from people first having databases and then CRM. um, And I took that through uh, into the my points business which you mentioned which really was on the pivot of uh, direct mail to email um, in the dot-com boom hmm. and since since the turn of the century you know we've had just a, a massive explosion in technological capability data collection and that enables us to do so much more in in quick cycle time to be so much powerful in how we deliver targeted advertising. So it's quite interesting you mentioned there the um, background you've got in direct marketing. How do you think that has evolved into digital marketing today? Uh, A lot of the principles seem to be the same. Um, Is it just the speed and the volume of data which we have now which has changed? Yeah, I think speed and volume. But if you break that down um, a bit in terms of the, the, the frequency with which you find out about what someone is doing online it's very quick so you know if i go back to the 90s and you know this will seem prehistoric to people who've only um you know worked in digital in the last 10 years but 
you know, we would take six weeks from when we signed off probably a, a big multi-million mailing campaign to it going through the printers, yeah. the enclosures, in the mail, back, and we would get one stat a day by fax from the post <laughs> office on the total response. And it would be months after that probably before it was all captured and um, we had a detailed analysis. And I still remember the thrill the first time we were looking at a browser and refreshing when a, an email marketing campaign was going out. So, you know, that's on the distribution side. It's totally different. The CPM has reduced from, say, 200 to 500 pound a thousand to two to five. You know, so that's like a hundred X reduction in, in the cost for, you know, mass, mass marketing. So, you know, that's one angle on it. Another is I think a lot of the early Internet pioneers were from brand marketing. They were from magazines, TV, et cetera. And it took direct marketing a while to establish itself on the Internet. But it's definitely established now. Um, you know, and the internet's powerful for brand marketing and direct marketing. I think the other factor that's changed massively, and this is where visual DNA comes in and our, our founder's vision, is that also when you were going on an analog shopping process, say sending those mail shots out, you didn't really know how many people had opened them and how close people had got to filling the coupon, even if it was still on their hall table waiting to come back. Hmm. Nowadays, you can measure you know, who's looking at different parts of your advert, you certainly know who's clicked through, and then you know exactly where they're going around your electronic store by clicks and duration of time spent. So you have a, an amazing audit trail, which was never available in the analog world. So that's so significantly different. It's a massive revolution. And what do you think has been the turning point between the whole world of data and analytics and direct mail, which you know, I think if we're honest, back in the 90s was seen as a little bit unsexy. It was, you know, below the line media to today when that exact same things, you know, data and analytics um, and now called digital marketing, of course, is seen as very much not just sexy, but the cutting edge of what marketers do. What do you think was the, the point where that balance shifted and what were the reasons for that? Yeah, I, th I do think it's shifted enormously, but I think we still have same, some of the same issues. You know, what, what shifted is, you know, really consumers' ability to interact uh, quickly with websites and other digital applications in a way that they never could, you know, with printed media. Um, the ability to gather people into social networks. In the 90s, we were building databases of people that were really what well, is the business back end, not necessarily much consumer experience. I mean, what Mark Zuckerberg's done with Facebook is amazing. If you can look at it as a social network, if you were a direct marketer trying to build mass population databases, you'd say what he cracked was you know, the biggest global marketing database ever using social networking um, as, as, as the front-end user experience. So, so that's changed tremendously. And you're right, direct mail was an unsexy medium. People called it gen junk mail generally. Um, I still think we, we've got a way to go because whilst TV advertising has, has often been regarded as kind of part of the entertainment for watching um, TV shows, um, then, you know, with digital advertising and some of the issues that we've got at the moment around ad blocking, um, we're not necessarily that far away at some ends of the spectrum from it being regarded uh, as the junk mail um, of the advertising industry. 
At the other end, we have some fantastic digital executions that are, are very entertaining for people and uh, enhance brands considerably um, and can uh, definitely promote their services and sell sell more products for them. Great. Thank you. That's given us a really useful framework, I think, on understanding how the landscape has changed. Could you now maybe tell us a bit more about visual DNA? What exactly does visual DNA do and what's your role there? Well, picking up from uh, the way I mentioned our founder, um, a minute ago, I mean, he saw in a world, you know, around 2005, six, before Google Analytics was really uh, a service that every website had, through his product and marketing roles, he saw that he spent a lot of time in store studying people and that he could get a pretty good idea of what someone was going to buy and whether they were going to buy by when they came into the store, what they looked like, what they were wearing, how they moved around the store, what they picked up, etc. And basically, you know, you could say manual profiling and that there was nothing like that on the Internet at that mm. point at all. So when he looked at a website, it was just clicks. You know, his vision, which was a tremendous vision, was to build a, a way of profiling and a system where you could find out who people were online and that everybody had a digital self that they could carry around with them. And that would include information about their character, not just the kind of demographics and where you last clicked kind of data, but who you are, which could help businesses to market to people and to help people to be better understood online so they would have better experiences. And he really spent five years um, refining this and creating you know, the superb uh, system that we have today, which was developed with major universities, where we have this kind of well certified, if you like, system of, of being able to analyze someone's psychological profile to the best uh, academic standards uh, and to build that into a beautiful experience because the image driven quiz means that people want to engage with that. And that is why 40 million plus people ever have taken the visual DNA quiz and the visual DNA quiz. You click on images and it helps to categorize you. Uh, into uh, personality types, like how extrovert you are, for example, how conscientious you are, as well as gathering other information for marketing and advertising purposes. And if you complete this, then you'll get very accurate psychological feedback. So that is that is the trade-off with, um, with the user. You can find out more about yourself, which is interesting and will help you with self-development. So fitting very much into the trends of quantified self. That methodology is core to what we do today. Uh, around five years ago, then he met a, a senior uh, Google product executive in the UK and uh, set about founding Visual DNA's digital advertising business, which is um, the business that we have today. Uh, involving taking that information along with a lot of information about what users are doing on the web and building powerful profiles that could be deployed through uh, the ad tech environment to enable people to target their advertising more effectively. So really the company spent five years in a kind of uh, academic um, incubation stage designing a really great underlying product. And then since then, uh, we've spent the period going to market, distributing the data, monetizing it, and becoming you know, a favorite of the um, platforms and, and major um, advertising agency groups. Fascinating story. Could you share with us how you actually collect the data? You mentioned these quizzes, and they're obviously very visual in the way they ask you to um, respond to those questions. But how are they distributed? Where would one come across these quizzes? You will come across them in all sorts of places on the web. 
lots of people search for personality tests and we are doing very well in the rankings for those. So anybody who wants to find out more about themselves will, will tend to go that route. They're distributed on Facebook virally. People who've taken them share them on, and share sometimes their results with their friends. There's many channels. Some publishers have links to our quiz. Uh, there's, a, there's over 100,000 completions a month. Um, and that, you know that's not primarily through, through us. Um, having campaigns that's primarily through people finding the quiz online so wide distribution you know we get great feedback from people that the profiles are very accurate and the re the reason for that is because there's a method that we call the big five or ocean which is one of the academic techniques that's that's been agreed on for 50 years as being an, a, an underpinning highly significant psychological classifications but the assessment method has traditionally been uh, you know a very what you call difficult to take test um, i.e lots of written questions that are abcd answers there's mm. no no way it's going to really go viral online so what visual dna did was take that test take uh, a panel and start designing uh, a, an image-based test where people would click on images instead of the having to read sentences that would still have the same power in the analysis as the academic test. So, I mean, and that literally took a number of years. So firstly, working out what the questions are and then which images, you know, have an unbi unbiased uh, response to them. And, and, and that builds up the profile feedback um, that, that we give out today. So a lot of, a lot of work with some leading academics uh, led to that. If I give you an example of a question, conscientiousness, which is about how ordered you are, you know, and people who are low on conscientiousness, for example, are much more likely to make impulse purchases, whereas people who are high on conscientiousness um, like to do research and they like to go through um, a systematic pattern in, in considering purchases. Therefore, trying to rush them through, you know, with an offer, you know, isn't isn't so good. You'd be better off giving them more of a guarantee at the end. So a conscientiousness question just says, you know, if you were due to meet a friend at six o'clock, what time would you usually turn up? It's got a five, a five to six, a six o'clock and a ten past six. And there's around 35 questions go into the psychological uh, evaluation between five and seven questions uh, form the scoring for each of, of the five dimensions. And everybody gets a badge for the type they are, um, plus the analysis of where they fit on, on, the, on the scale for each of the five types. Okay, so the incentive for the user is really to be able to get quite a detailed analysis of their personality, which is, as you mentioned before, something which within this um, era when people want to understand what their personality is and how to better increase themselves, etc., cetera, um, that's actually quite valuable for them. But one of the other challenges that we face at the moment is consumers very much being aware of how their data is being captured and used. Do you face any problems? Um, and do the consumers who are filling in these surveys know that the data which they're supplying to you is now going to be used for advertising? Well, firstly, yes, yes, the pit, they, they do know. Um, you know, and we use that data directly, but we also use that data a lot as, the, if you like, the seed. Uh, for building you know, ma massive segments of people who who have those characteristics yeah, algorithmically. So from that end, they know. I think it's a very interesting point, this whole debate about, about privacy. And certainly it's great that more and more, and more is open, I think, on the internet now. Um, but there's a kind of paradox in that the more, you know, 
more data is being collected all the time and whilst privacy and other uh, similar issues are, are often voiced actually you know pe people's tendency to provide more and more personal information more frequently into more different environments whether that's their fitness app facebook instagram etc uh, is is you know this shows no no pattern that actually people don't want to give away give information on themselves as long as you know it's it's in exchange for something that they value no i, I think that's that's a fair point that um there is actually um, now more data available out there on individuals than there ever has been before. But you're right. I mean, even though consumers recognize there are some dangers and maybe get creeped out when they get retargeted, um, they don't seem to be stopping. Although I suppose, you know, later on, we might get into ad blockers and, you know, the role that they've been playing for consumers who, who maybe have had enough of, um, of allowing their data to be used for advertising. So we've been talking a lot about the way in which visual DNA can help understands the consumers and segment them into different profiles but how much do you think the industry understands about psychology um, so when i'm saying the industry i mean marketers and those in ad agencies do you think it's something that they understand yet and are able to use within the tools they have available i think we're at a tipping point on this one actually there is a lot of conversation right now an increased adoption of emotional response psychology personality talk about creative targeting where you would give a different creative uh, to different people who are within your target audience segment um, I think firstly then marketers and advertisers aren't all psychologists so it's up to us to package the product well that they can use we, we've just launched what we think is our most marketer and advertiser friendly product range which is called audiences with personality we've brought that to market acknowledging that we can't go into marketers and talk about you know conscientiousness openness etc um, and expect to get a huge product adoption of, of our psychological based segments you know rather than the fact that advertisers obviously use us for demographics interest brand preference intent and that type of data but to really make uh, the usage of personality data grow then then we've introduced segments now with names like impulsive buyers compulsive buyers you know, thrill-seeking shoppers, early adopters, research shoppers, window shoppers, you know, things that get more to the core of, of who the type of person the marketer is trying to target and how they might target them. So I, th I think you know, part, part of it is up to you know, visual DNA and others in the market to create um, more usable products. And then I think the psychological uh, type data will play its part to a much greater extent um, than it does today. Everybody finds the analysis intriguing, and you know there are gr great use cases where people are developing, for example, photo shoots um, based on now understanding their customer base in different ways, and that there are different types within it. Um, segmenting uh, their target audiences in that way for newsletters, for example, as well as all the ab advertising targeting. Could you give us an example maybe of how some brands have done that, how they've segmented based on psychology? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, one, one example would be for, um, for a well-known grocery um, supermarket in the UK. And they have quite an affluent customer base. Um, but we examined the baskets when people were buying, uh, you know, large baskets, basket sizes that were obviously geared to entertainment. 
um, and discovered you know, very different psychological patterns within their customer base. So some people were shopping for you know, the raw ingredients to make dishes that were you know, from, from, from recipe books and, and were very bold, very extrovert, very confident in their ability. You know, and, and for them, the supermarket wanted to put across the message that they had the best ingredients in terms of range and quality. At the other end of the scale, there was, um, you know, there's a, there's a very big group of people um, for whom, you know, having said that they're going to have a dinner party for eight or ten people on a Saturday night, um, what happens from the moment they send out that email or however they communicate it um, onwards is a terrifying experience. So, you know, huge number of, of people who are, who are, you know, in psychological terms neurotic and really worried that it won't come off well. And <laughs> yeah, we all know people of both types. Oh yeah, you know. So the communications they needed to do to them were totally different because for that group it was an assurance that they could pretty much just buy the dinner party, stick it in the oven, and nothing would go wrong. Whereas the other type was the adventurous yeah. type, um, who who for the, for them, ser serving up a dish that had been pre-cooked for a supermarket would be the worst experience. But both of them shop. You know, it, spend a lot of money. Um, you know, for for, the, for that event, hundreds of pounds, and actually they learned that you need to talk to them a completely different way. So they were able to effectively then change the creative and the ad copy that went in that email communication to reflect the different psychological uh, sort of triggers of the of the audience segment. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, they split that three ways. Um, you know, a very good, a very good advertising example was with beauty products, and um, we took a creative and split it four ways. Um, so we took the control, um, and then we used extroversion and openness. You know, we saw a, we saw a very, well, we saw a massive uplift on the uh, on the introversion, the biggest of the lot. It was way over a hundred percent, and that was through through using an image of. of um, of a model who was looking in the mirror and basically was applying the products for her own self-satisfaction. Often makeup products are promoted in a way that you're clearly doing it to impress others, which is quite an extrovert theme. Um, so I think it was 168% uplift versus the control on the introvert segment. Um, we also got the second biggest uplift was on the on the low openness um, segment. So people who are you know less likely to change behaviours, um, and we did that by showing a very um, traditional way of of buying beauty products, which was you know the typical two the two girls uh, standing in front of a makeup stand where all the lipsticks are in those um, are, are in those little pod holders. Um, you know, which was very different to the way that they were promoting to um, to the high openness people, which was more about you know different applications of the products and how how you could look different to everybody else. So, from from those four executions, we showed a 56% overall uplift, and that was measured actually by value of um, product bought through the checkout. So, so if you can execute on that, there's there's a huge opportunity to um, to, to be, because advertising, you know, when they, you know, go back to the Mad Men, it was about psychologically understanding your customer base and what message would trigger them to buy. What we now have is the ability to uh, understand that whether you've got a mass market product or a niche market product, 
people will buy for different reasons. Back in the Mad Men days, or maybe not, you know, maybe this the 90s when I was working in advertising, you'd actually have those profiles which you'd build up and you'd be talking about things like psychological need state and you'd be looking at um, trying to build those into the personas which you had. But it would, it would be largely based upon focus groups, maybe a bit of TGI type data, Cantal now, um, pulling that in to really still understand attitudes and extrapolating beliefs. But it would be very, very big segments. I suppose the beauty that you now have with your uh, platform is being able to pull in very granular data um, and the segments that you, you've been talking about, I imagine are, are very small and very accurate. Could I just ask you though about the creative, because you mentioned that now you've, you're able to get those insights and go back and say, right, this person's more of an extrovert, this person's more of an introvert. Do you see that the creatives within agencies actually understand enough of how to write copy and create images which are optimized for those different personality types this is the journey that we need to go on and i think it links through to you know the bigger theme that you mentioned earlier that we'll come on to about ad blocking etc these aren't necessarily small segments we can divide an entire campaign into two three or four um, with no drop in volume you're just making it you're just optimizing it for those for those segments so that there isn't a risk that you're just going to come up with some small psychological um, segments. I think what you have harking back to the you know, 90s and looking at the audience as one is, you know, we have this tension between uh, a single brand message and fame for that message and then how you deploy that to uh, marketing segments because not everybody who drinks Coca-Cola or who buys a BMW um, that does it for the same reasons and is the same profile. But brand marketers would like everybody to align to the same uh, aspiration, strap line, etc. Um, and we have to find a way of addressing that, which I think there's a lot of coverage on at the moment with the with the uh, different views on how successful some of the digital media have been for brand marketers like PNG. You know, we need to work out how to integrate the two, and the creatives aren't really at the party yet creative is not integrated into you know programmatic uh, media buying in the way that it needs to be that's a big journey for us to go on and it's not at the campaign segmentation level i think it's also at the level of whether people choose to take a, 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 an ad blocker um, uh, and are resistant to advertising or whether they uh, enjoy the advertising as part of the experience you know, which is largely the case with TV advertising. Just before we get into ad blockers, which I am keen to come back to in a minute, very much the topic of the day, I wanted to ask a little bit more about actually how your system is able to marry up the data that you're collecting on people's psychological profile and then marry that against the data which an existing company or brand might have on their customers. So could you maybe just kind of talk us through, in quite layman's terms, how that works? And I also wanted to just ask how that varies and how that might be more relevant for big companies versus the smaller companies as well. So what we have is this incredibly large sample set or seed set of people who've answered Visual DNA's quizzes. And we also have a big data network. So you can do research within, this, within the sample base, and we run a lot of brand surveys for people to find out um, about customer behaviors um, and to be able to qualify people into certain buyer types that enables them to build better target segments. 
At a level above that, we have hundreds of millions of profiles, around 650 million at the moment, web profiles, where we have extensive information about people's uh, online behavior. Um, and we write an algorithm so that we can find out uh, who, who is most likely to be in each segment. So at the, at the big data level, um, we have extremely large reach um, in, the, in the UK, US, um, and the core EMEA markets of France, Germany, Italy, and Spain um, that enables us to build big target segments. It also means that if we analyze uh, a website in terms of who buys or who visits different product categories, or um, we, we track a, a promotion in terms of who sees or clicks on an advert, then you know, we, can, we can match up um, uh, at scale um, the, the customers, build an accurate profile uh, of them, which can help you in targeting, you know, a whole range of channels. Um, you know, our biggest a digital display, um, you know, linked to programmatic ad tech platforms, uh, video, um, and mobile, where we have data for browsers and uh, mobile IDs. There are also, you know, great use cases for for CRM, which I think is is coming to the party more and more as some of the um, big platforms uh, get on board. We integrated with Adobe and Oracle in the last 12 months um, to enable that, um, and and then it, in further channels too. You know, the key is the ability to match what's happening in the browser or what's happening on a device and say, yes, this person coming to your website, for example, we, know, we, we can see you know, often from a cookie, this is what we know about that person and building an analytics report um, on, the, on, the, on, on the result from that sample. But you know, a difference between us you know, and a traditional research company is that we, we have such large numbers in our, in our seed universe and our big data universe that we're able to provide this for hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands when they're mostly providing it for, for, for tens and hundreds. But how are you able to match the same individual from a brand's CRM platform? You know, they might know email, they might know some customer data, they might know some web behavior from their own website, e-commerce portal. How are you able to match that user with the user ID in your system with all this additional data that you've collected? Yeah, well, the simplest would be if they've been to the website or a digital property, um, and then we will, you know, we will look for the visual DNA cookie when when they're on that site, and then we'll have their ID, and then we'll be able to say, ah, oh, this is, this is, this is, well, anonymously because it's it, you know, it doesn't use name and address; it uses just a, a anonymous identifier. You know, this this is ID one two three from visual DNA, and we know this about them, or we predict this about them most frequently in terms of their behaviour. Um, with CRM, we can match through email syncing, um, but the most common way to do it is, uh, you know, on the on the open web, along with you know most companies in 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 the business able to um, uh, see that uh, you know a, this user is the same as that user, um, know stuff about them, but not know their um, their. their personal information so you'd have the cookie for visual dna on the retailer's site obviously the, the user comes to the retailer site the retailer recognizes them and then you're able to match what the retailer knows about them with the data from your cookie to, to recognize the same individual and thereafter you're able to then track um, and know it's the same individual absolutely and, and you know publishers do that we work extensively with publishers building audience data 
you know, their data goes into the visual DNA network that enables them not only to learn more about behavior on their site, but they're learning about that person's behavior across a wide range of websites, but as classified by us, by looking at this, um, you know, like Venn diagram overlap of where um, people have answered our quiz. So you know, publishers are trying to overcome this issue that you know, people most surf on things like news, celebrity, sport, but advertisers want to buy on auto, finance, travel, you know, whatever their categories are. Visual DNA enables publishers to know about their customers, you know, one-to-one in a much deeper way than they do otherwise, because we will have seen those people in a number of places and a large sample of them will have taken our quiz. So we can say this person who, yes, they only clicked three times on you know, the story of the day on your website, but actually from the 50 times we've seen them um, and the fact that they, uh, ha- that's very similar in profile to someone who took our test in this way, you know, we are putting them into these segments. And that enables publishers to build great audience data uh, and therefore to sell better targeted advertising. Presumably at a bit of a premium as well, because now they can actually tell the advertisers a lot more about those audiences. Um, you talked to, uh, about the volume of data before as well. You talked about the some of the very large numbers of, of records that you have there. Could you give us an indication of how many extra fields your data would add to, let's say, a retailer um, if they were to get visual DNA? I mean, are we talking sort of two times the number of fields, three times the number of fields? So, so how it normally works is that these platforms that host the data, I mean, I mentioned Oracle and Adobe earlier as, as CRM, you know, they would have our data service, they would have our data hosted and they would match it on the fly. So, so people wouldn't need to significantly, you know, make a technical change to open up fields on the database to store it. You know, the, our primary transaction is where a, our data is used in the bidding for an ad impression. Um, and someone says, you know, I want to buy on this range of sites when this, um, when someone fits into this visual DNA segment, the data comes together in the, in the, in the DSP, the demand side platform, like a, a Google DBM and AppNexus media math turn. And, um, and that transaction is made and we, you know, we receive a, a license fee when the impression is rendered. So there's no kind of technical change required to store data. We have about 800 characteristics about people. You know, m- many, many people might have 10 to 30 of those. If you've got a, a DMP um, within one of the leading platforms, then the likelihood is you can, you can view your visual DNA platform by just changing the configuration um, uh, and licensing rather than having to choose which data you might add to a database. So would it be the case that if an advertiser, a, a trading desk at a, an immediate agency was going in and wanting to buy um, more accurately the, the audience data, um, they would then look at all the different options on the market. They'd see that you have this very rich psychographic data and they would sort of you know, click on within the terminal to buy an audience using those particular segments. Would there be a premium for accessing this psychographic data versus the standard uh, data in a, in a in a terminal. The the CPM is slightly higher, yes. Um, but it's what you find is that the the best traders are doing some analysis first, and and they're seeing what the uplift is from uh, from different segments that they could buy against, and and if they're really sophisticated, they're looking at you know where the invent inventory is available at the best rates, 
and how that combines well with the data they could overlay on it and how to find segments that that they think offer the best value um, from that perspective. So there's a lot of analytics goes behind the best decisions. Um, there's also quite a lot of kind of brochureware type buying from the descriptions of people who are in the segments. So different ways of determining. I mean, ultimately, the best way to do it algorithmically is to look at the cookies and see uh, and to write a custom algorithm with us that picks um, the best, you know, X percent of our audience according to um, according to all of the latest information, because obviously we're getting information in, uh, you know, by by the second uh, we update all the major platforms on, on a 24 hour basis. Uh, so uh, you can actually uh, see the shift in the types of people within a segment according to who's engaging with a campaign and you can be constantly targeting the best people. Now, we touched on before the very thin line between being able to capture more data and more insights into the consumer and the other side of that, which is we start to freak the consumer out a little bit and creep them out when they start to see particularly things like retargeting, following them around the internet. What do you think is going to be the solution there? Because, you know, we've been talking a lot about collecting more data, but how do we then um, reassure the consumer and make them feel that they're having a better web experience? So I think there's some good initiatives on that at the moment. I, I would love to be that person who had the solution. I think there's a big difference between what we call implicit targeting, which is what we do, which is trying to make messages more appropriate without freaking the consumer out, as you put it. Because, you know, if you're offering someone the guarantee rather than the discount, if you're talking to them in a way that you think, you know, that the extrovert will engage versus the introvert, et cetera, or going back to that supermarket example, you chose to put a different set of products up with a different tone of voice. There's no, there's no transparency, um, but there's, there's, there's no threat to the consumer. I think when you get into retargeting ads and you get more into the, um, you know, displaying back, to the consumer what you know about them, then there is an issue. And I think we have, you know, we have a significant problem in that we have a, we've created a very open environment if you take programmatic generally and not the walled gardens such as Facebook. Um, and, and therefore there's no, there's no overall supervisory management of it. So, you know, someone like Facebook can decide what the user experience is going to be. But on the open web, you know, the ratio of retargeting ads that someone might get, for example, and the amount of those that are, are actually poorly managed ad ops because people already um, bought the product, for example, it, you know, it's very difficult to control. You know, and ironically, you know, one of the star performers on the stock market for investors, you know, is, is you know, a company that specializes in retargeting. There's a lot of conflicts um, in managing this, but overall, I think we have to get more you know, we have to get better creative that's more implicit and not explicit about what we know uh, about consumers. Um, and we need to try and, uh, you know, raise the game in terms of the, of, of the ads uh, that, that are shown to people. And, uh, you know, publishers collectively have some responsibility to do that. But I think individually, outside those walled gardens, each of them has so little influence that it's very difficult for them to make the bold steps that are required. So definitely increasing the quality and the relevance of the online ads which people see will help. And uh, I think you were also suggesting maybe that we could reduce some of the volume to uh, address that concern that consumers have about just constantly being spammed with 
with ads. Uh, I mean, this leads us nicely on to the sort of elephant on, in the room that we've discussed around, which is ad blockers, which I think is affecting the whole industry at the moment. What do you see as being the solution for advertisers to get around the problem of ad blockers? And what role can visual DNA play in helping advertisers do that? So the the role that we play can undoubtedly be in providing ads, providing the ability to show people ads that, that are better targeted to them. You know, there are a range of issues. I mean, I you know, I'm in the industry, but I get despairing at how many times I'm seeing that there is, you know, amazing life assurance uh, offers available in St. Albans, that there is, you know, great weight loss experience from St. Albans person. I happen to live in St. Albans uh, and all this stuff, which is, you know, not cleverly targeted at all, but presumably beats the next best thing that uh, the advertiser could put in that slot or the publisher could put in that slot. You know, it does need better working together to try and create an environment that is a better experience for for users. Exactly how that comes about, I think, needs a lot of work between between publishers. Um, otherwise, it's something that will endure, you know, for for a long time in its current state. You know, in terms of how the ads are targeted, I think one of the issues is that a lot of the people working within these industry groups you know, aren't the ones that are causing the problem. You know, if we go back to, you know, my previous thing about junk mail versus versus other forms of advertising, TV advertising, say, you know, the brands can be very doing a very good job. But if a, a large percentage of the adverts are effectively direct offers that are very repetitive and that people you know, don't want to see time and time again, then publishers have got a very difficult choice at a time when they're um, they're under a lot of pressure to drive their revenues up, which aren't always as effective in digital as they were in print. Um, and, and, and the choice of not taking ads is, is one that, or not taking the same volume of ads is one that they don't necessarily have from their um, from their boards and their investors. So I think I think we're in for quite a quite a prolonged journey on this. Perhaps it'll take some some bigger shocks than the ones we've got currently with the ad blocking problem to actually change behaviour. Because although there's some good initiatives, there doesn't seem to be a lot of a lot of behavioural change um, happening now in terms of the number of ads that people see, the relevance of the ads, etc. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, I've been recently to a couple of events. One, the AOP event, which was very much talking about how publishers can can work together, and and also recently an IAB event on ad blocking where very much the the focus was on well how can we come together to find a collaborative solution they've actually launched an alliance for better ads now and they've the IAB have always had this sort of the standards the LEAN and another acronym um, that I forget right now but um, you know looking at how advertisers can create a better experience for for users one of the interesting points that was made though is that it's all well and good for advertisers to say that but they also have a commercial responsibility to be pumping out those ads which are maybe a little bit spammy um, for the consumers. Absolutely. And it's not necessarily the members of the IAB, the AOP, etc., which are causing the problem. And I think that's an issue. Yeah. I think Facebook, for example, can manage who advertises on its site, can decide what ratios it wants. All the brands that we know can get together with all the publishers whose names we recognize. And it may not solve enough of the problem to stop someone wanting to ad block because, you know, the great thing about the Internet, but which isn't perhaps so great in this instance, is how websites come out of nowhere very quick now to adopt an advertising model can have millions of page views, you know, and, and, and are selling that to, to, to advertising where the creative, you know, is is intrusive is pure direct response is certainly isn't part of the 
viewing experience as a consumer would see as a positive one. Yes, absolutely. So now I'd like to look to the future uh, quickly as well. And what do you think is going to be the next big disruption within the ad industry and maybe specifically for DSPs? We're only at the start of the journey. We have only had five years really where the programmatic plumbing has been being put into place, where everything works well now, most of the time, where consumers have smartphones and other devices that they are, you know, are viewing for significant periods of the day. You know, we're very young in the evolution of this right now. And therefore, because we're in it, there's a temptation to think that we're a more advanced state, but that's like thinking the Model T Ford was the ultimate car rather than just an iconic one early in the in the history of the car. I think there will be much more sophisticated use of data in targeting advertising in the future. I think that there'll be increasing propositions which kind of blur the lines between data, inventory, um, you know, the, the proposition of how to reach an audience of people will shift significantly. Uh, and the intelligence behind how an advert is created that appeals to that person uh, will also shift. So I think you know, in the next generation, we'll see much more of the, of the creative technologies coming on board in terms of how ads are rendered. I really see a two-tier a two targeting. At the moment, we talk more about the audience segment and who's in the audience, which is very important. We've already talked about that. Over the top of that, what digital has given us that we haven't really exploited yet, but wasn't possible in, uh, in many other channels previously, is, is to think of the creative targeting as a completely different layer. So we have all these people that we think are the market for our product. How do I engage with them? How do I have differentiated strategies for them? Um, and how do I set that up as, a, as if you like, a playbook uh, in, a, in an advertising platform? I think AppNexus call it the transition from programmatic to programmable, a visual DNA that we think that right now is the time that we are shifting from you know, the early plays of, okay, we can do this and it offers efficiency to how do I optimize and automate it um, and get more clever about how I'm, uh, how I'm managing this process. You know, and the fact that you can uh, understand someone, uh, understand the motivations by what they do, how to sell to them, who they are, rather than just where they are and what they buy is a key part of the future. And that's really what visual DNA is focused on. Fantastic. And just to um, bring things to a close now, people will have been listening to the interview and hearing about all these exciting developments and maybe wanting to, to learn more and find out about how they could develop their career in advertising and specifically within this area of understanding consumers in, in much more detail through data. What would be your advice to somebody who's who's listened to this and feels inspired to want to learn more about how they can get into the industry? Well, firstly, I think it's a tremendous industry to be in and developing skills within this industry, whether it's on more the technical, the commercial, the creative side is, uh, you know, is, is a passport to uh, having a, a great potential career. Uh, because the interaction between people and devices and uh, doing commerce and consuming content uh, on digital devices is absolutely a hotspot to be for your career. I think uh, if someone was coming into this and, you know, we have some you know, interns working uh, at Visual DNA, I would say try and learn 
you know, learn broadly. I mean, what I've always found is very important in my career is that, you know, you need to learn your role, but you need to learn enough about the roles of all those people around you in your company, you know, your supply chain, people you buy off, people you sell to, to create a much, uh, a much broader understanding of your, of your role, um, you know, than, than purely within your job description. So net, always have the appetite to learn would be my um, primary advice. Um, I'm not someone who landed myself instantly with necessarily the best iconic company uh, in, in the best job, but you, you get in there and you fish for where you can move forwards. And uh, if you work hard at that, then then anybody can be successful in this, as is proved by a you know, tremendous amount of number of successful entrepreneurs in digital advertising. Great advice there. In terms of how you get in touch with Visual DNA, obviously we're on the web, visualdna.com, uh, um, LinkedIn, we have a Twitter and welcome anyone to get in touch with us who wants to find out more about how they could uh, improve their insight and targeting um, of consumers uh, using uh, personality data. Jim, thank you so much for your time today. That's been an incredible journey you've taken us on to really understand how visual DNA is at the forefront of a lot of the ways in which marketers and advertisers can now use this big data together with insights from psychology to pull together profiles um, that will really create effective advertising. So thank you, Jim. Thank you. ClickZ, the original digital business intelligence company founded in 1997, provides best practice advice, trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 100,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals. We'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks. Until then, keep up to date with ClickSee. Thank you for listening and bye for now.